Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Uh, Do you like secrets? You want to hear a secret? At the end of the gathering, I'll share it with you. So anyway, uh, I'm going to give you some homework today out of this gathering, but uh, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2, and as you're going there... I was thinking this week about something I heard in a meeting uh, years ago. Years ago, I heard this communicator make this statement. He said this, most people are not afraid of the church. They're just incompatible with church culture. (laughs) I thought that's interesting. Most people are not afraid of the church or spirituality. They're just incompatible with church culture. You see, I think sometimes, as we've seen a deterioration of engagement with the church across Canada, sometimes the church is tempted to see rejection of the church as rejection of spirituality, when it's really not. If anything, the data says quite the inverse of that. In fact, a a nationwide survey done by Angus Reid said this, that 86% of Canadians participated in prayer that 42, 42% of them prayed weekly and 44% of them prayed uh, two to three times a month. Our friends, Canadians are deeply spiritual. They're just less religious. Deeply spiritual, though. Canadians are grabbing hold of in their spirituality what N.T. Wright, a theologian, calls broken signposts. And broken signposts are meaning that, that there's great intention spiritually, but little reflection. That there's great motion spiritually, but no direction. That there's a sense of lostness about the spirituality in our nation. Now, this is no, not a new phenomenon. As our teaching pastor, Keith Smith, by, way, by the way, it's his birthday today, but that's just a little side note. We would be giving you a cake, Pastor Keith, but only for the big significant birthdays. You, 41 just doesn't count. So, like, we're just... We're just glad to have you. We love you so much, man. But when he designed this series, it was designed around the book of Colossians. And Paul writes this letter to a kind of insignificant city. It wasn't even the most important city in the area. Likely, Paul never even visited this city. How did the gospel get to Colossae? Well, it got to Colossae through a man named Epaphras. And it had taken root, and there was a church there, and there were new believers, and it began to thrive. But they began to get distracted by these broken signposts. And the two broken signposts sound really spiritual, incredibly spiritual. Here are the two ones that Paul addresses. Self-saving spirituality and sensational spirituality. And he says both of these are broken signposts. Broken signposts. Paul's making a case that being spiritual is not enough. It's just not enough. You see, everyone in Paul's day was spiritual. Everyone was spiritual. You couldn't help it. You couldn't escape the gods in his day. You see, in the ancient culture that Paul wrote, they, they, they saw the world that the, the habitat and the activity in the abode of humans intersected with the activity in the abode of the gods. There was an overlap. And in that overlap, they built temples. And the temple was where the gods, the local gods, lived. 
And at the center of the temple would have been an image of that God, an idol. And it gave the worshipers a focus for their worship. It also gave them a focus for the place of power in their community. In that ancient culture, they saw that there were always two sets of inhabitants in every city, town, and village. Some were seen and some were unseen. The visible inhabitants were the people. The invisible inhabitants were the gods or the people who had already died. And it was the job of the magistrates in every town, city, and village to negotiate the relationship between the gods and humans. That somehow, if you could just appease the gods, please the gods, that they would bring prosperity and blessing to the community. So the magistrates worked hard to keep peace between the gods and humans. This is why... Uh, they didn't like new gods being introduced in these cities, towns, and villages. So you can look in the book of Acts and there's incredible rhythm. The apostle Paul goes into a city and normally he gets arrested, put on trial, and beaten. If you read the book of Acts, how many times have you seen that little pattern for Paul, the apostle Paul? He goes to a village, he gets arrested, he, gets, uh, he goes on trial, he gets beaten, and somehow miraculously gets released somehow. What's going on there? What is he charged with? Shoplifting? No. Murder? No. He's charged with disturbing the peace. In fact, in Athens, he's charged with preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. You see, the magistrates are concerned because maybe the local gods won't like this new god. They don't want their people to be wooed away from the local gods and jeopardize the peace and the prosperity of the town or the village. So everyone in Paul's day was immersed in this fabric. Everyone was spiritual. And we can look in modern-day Canadians and go like, well, what a primitive culture, right? Local gods over an area, blessing and peace dependent on that. Like, what, you know, we're modern-day Canadians, Jonathan. What, what are you talking to us about this? And I'd say to you today, check yourself. <laughs> check yourself. Canadians are deeply spiritual. And so are you. Our gods look a little different. Our gods look a lot like money, power, war, sex. You can always tell when idols are being worshipped because it makes no sense not to make those idols a part of your identity and your priority pursuit. Think about it in our context then. It's normal to find your identity in your sexuality. It's just normal. It'd be abnormal not to. Well, you know there's an idol there. You know, I just speak to you, friends, like, beloved, well, you are so much more than your sexual identity. There's so much more to who you are as a person made in the image of God. But it's normal in our culture. Why? Because that's an idol of ours. It's normal to sacrifice a marriage, to sacrifice a, a, a partnership, to sacrifice a connection to our children at the altar of money and the pursuit of money. It's normal to, to medicate ourselves uh, on the drug of power, to give us the illusion that we're somehow in control and that we can live forever. I mean, that's normal in our culture and world. We don't even blink an eye at it. We expect it, don't we, friends? Why? Because these are our gods. These are our... No See, secularism pushes religion aside so it can establish new temples to power, to money, to, to, to sex. And it's interesting... All of these new gods promise the same things these ancient gods did. 
They all promise to protect you. Doesn't money give you that illusion that somehow you're insulated from trouble? Come on. How many like a little bit of buffer in your bank account? How many like to know that maybe there's some RSPs growing somewhere? That there's, uh, what's it called when you get from the government? Old age security, right? Old age security. We'll see what's left for us when we get there someday. But like, we like knowing that. Why? Because it gives us an illusion that somehow we're protected, right? We're buffered. But some of you have lived long enough to know, easy come, easy go, that money can't provide what it actually is telling you it can do. Sex promises to fulfill you, to complete you, until you realize it kind of rips apart the fabric of your life when it's not done in something that is a covenant relationship. Power gives us an illusion that somehow, yeah, we're in control of our life, but you only wake up someday to realize how little control you actually have, right? See, all of that is because these gods promise the same things these ancient gods do, but none of them can save you. And Paul jumps into the middle of this conversation, and he challenges us. He challenges us. And he challenges people in Colossians and in Colossae as he would challenge modern-day Canadians that are deeply spiritual. He challenges us around two areas. If you have a Bible, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. We're going to spend all our time there. 16 to 23. Paul starts... And he talks about, and he's really talking about this idea of self-saving spirituality. He starts this way. You don't, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy day, days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial. Now, what's going on here? Well, Paul starts by identifying two broken signposts of religion and effort. They're both used to self-save ourselves. It's self-saving spirituality. Some people use religious practices. Other people use effort and discipline. And Paul says both of them lead to bondage and condemnation. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't condemn them. They're not evil in themselves. They're not evil things. They, but when they're over-amplified and you put your trust in them, you're losing the point of them. You're missing the point. He takes aim first at religious signposts. He talks about these, these uh, celebrating certain holy days, new moon ceremonies, the Sabbaths, all of these religious festivals and dietary restrictions he'll talk about in the same chapter. He talks about all these things, and apparently there are religious people among the believers in Colossae that are saying, you're just not uber-religious enough. Like, you've got to step up your pious game. Where's your devotion? And so they're making them feel bad and actually condemning them because they're not as disciplined as them. Now, why would someone condemn another person? Why would a religious person condemn someone else? Well, because they put their trust in the wrong things. I think I've noticed over the years that there's personality types, wiring types, that can be more susceptible to this than others. Some of the more susceptible ones are those of you who are in the room that you're just really ordered and disciplined and able and controlled. And, and you see that as an extension of your spirituality. And sometimes it's often very sincere, very confident, and many times it can be even controlling and intimidating to the people around you. You see, I've seen this type of spirituality and it, it particularly favors people that were just like the Apostle Paul. 
Apostle Paul is one of those interesting characters in Scripture. Yeah, you know, a lot of people love him, and some people struggle with him. Uh, often they struggle with things he said, and they don't understand the context, or it's been misframed. And so I think sometimes he gets a really hard rap. He's actually a pretty incredible human being. He really was. But he was incredibly disciplined. He's a lot tidier than many of us in this room are. His life was ordered. There was, a, there was a ferocity in the way he was able to handle things and order his life and control his appetites and control things. I mean, it's very unusual, a high level, and some of you can find yourselves there. But he's saying, be careful. With these religious practices, this devotion, this piousness, you could miss the point. I left out a little part of verse 17 where Paul says this, for these rules are only, can you say this next sentence with me? Shadows of the reality yet to come. All of those religious practices are shadows of the reality to come. In other words, they're a means of connecting to God. Don't mistake them for your connection with God. They are a means of connecting to God. Don't mistake them for your connection with God. I was thinking about the idea of connecting and connection this week. Uh, I was on Twitter, and I remembered, just hit me this week, that my dad had been on Twitter. And I looked up his account, and I realized his last tweet happened about three days ago, about 10 years ago. And it wasn't really important what it said. I just reread his words, and you know, I missed him in that moment. I did not miss the ways we connected. We connected around all kinds of things. We connected around, he had a deep love of history, so do I. We connected around, uh, like dad loves, loved information and ideas and he'd always be emailing me stuff and I love information and ideas and stuff. So there was all kinds of connecting points we have. I don't miss any of that. I miss the connection we had. I thought, I thought about that with my own children. I connect around with them through different activities. One of my sons is right into MMA and, and, and trains and loves that scene, so I watch it with them. It's not about the MMA. That's just a connecting point. The connection is what matters. Some of my kids love music, so I go to concerts with them. It's not about the music. That's just a connecting point. It's about the connection with them. A lot of times in our devotion, we elevate the connecting point over the actual connection. And you begin to see the fruit of that in people's lives. I, I remember this quote by Tolkien. It's one of my favorite of his. He, when he said, you can only come to the morning through the shadows. And he's talking about difficult times. You can only come into the morning when you go through difficult times. You'll only appreciate the morning when you go through difficult times. But I thought of that quote when I was thinking the reality of what Paul was saying here. That, that really, we shouldn't despise the shadows uh, and whether those religious practices are just shadows of the reality yet to come, those are means by which we use to connect to God. They're not evil in themselves. But be careful. The connecting point was never the point. The point is the connection. And this is what Paul would say to those first century believers. Then he moved from religious practices in, in, that, in, those, in the, the idea of self-saving spirituality, and he moved to effort. Look at verse 23 in chapter 2. He says this, These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. Now, why would any of that appear, appeal to anybody? Because it gives you an opportunity to earn it, doesn't it? 
It seems so wise. It seems so right. Why? Because you can earn God's good favor. You can earn the gods being pleased and prospering you and blessing you. That somehow you can grab hold of it. This means you can work the system, right? Work the system. But listen to what he says. Here's his caution. But they provide, can you say this with me, these two words? No help. They provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. I've seen this over the years. People who live incredibly immaculate religious lives, tidy lives, but there's these evil desires that they harbor beneath all of that control. Self-righteousness, attitudes, and behaviors that if they were public, and they thrive in the shadows of all that devotion, all of that piousness, all of that tidiness, all of that control. You know, sometimes they're intimidating to be around. When I was a young pastor, I was just a youth pastor on the west side of Toronto. There was a guy in our church, his name was Hugh. I think Hugh is with the Lord now because he was close to being with the Lord, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> so I'll talk about Hugh in this moment. Hugh would come by my, every Sunday he'd find me to tell me how much he prayed that week. And it was always like, and pastor, how much did you pray? And his best one was like, I was up at, and honestly, every week it'd be the same thing. I was up at three or four in the morning on a prayer walk. What time did you get up? I'm 22 years old. I'm lucky to have showed up to church that day. Like I'm up until one in the morning doing, you know, I don't know, but like I'm young. So one Sunday he's coming, he, I, I'm, I'm walking or he's walking out the door and he sees me beelines across and his wife's with him. And he says, pastor, what time are you up this morning? And I was like, oh, well, Hugh, I showed up to church today. <laughs> like, like, I got in, up enough in time to get showered, and you should thank me for that. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, I was up at 3 in the morning, out doing a prayer walk. And then his wife hits him and says, Hugh, tell him what time you go to bed. <laughs> he says nothing. He kind of looks down. And says, Hugh, tell him. And so he says, 7 p.m. <laughs> and I'm like... Like, I'm up for five more hours after that. What? You should be up at 3 a.m. if you go to bed at 7 p.m. You know, here's the thing. Sometimes all that control, all that tidiness, all that devotion, all that piousness can puff you up. Be very careful, friends. Be careful. Because sometimes it harbors your need for control. It's harboring sin that lurks in the background. It cannot save you. One of the most devout people and pious people I've ever known was my aunt, uh, Aunt Joan. She lives, to this day, she's in her late 90s. She lives in Peter Maritzburg, South Africa. A quarter of my family live in South Africa. And uh, she and her husband, Mark, worked among the Zulu people for 60 years. She speaks perfect Zulu, and she was there as a nurse giving care as well as sharing Jesus. I've never met someone like Aunt Joan. Her prayer life, whoa. Fasting, prayer, devotion to scripture. She, I, I, I know I told you about her in the past because I used her as an illustration. Every time she and Uncle Mark would come and visit our house in New Brunswick, I would like get right with Jesus just before she comes because I was just sure she could see every sin in me. I knew she could see every sin in me. So I made sure there was no sin in me so she could not accuse me. You know, 
But if you met Aunt Joan, you realize you'd have nothing to be afraid of. It was almost like the more devoted she was, the sweeter she was. Her piousness and devotion didn't turn into rigidity. It turned into kindness and sweetness. You never felt guilty being around her. You felt hungry to be like her. You didn't feel judged ever around Aunt Joan. You wouldn't. Well, I remember the first time, Shelley's only met her two or three times, and I know she's probably our, her favorite family member from the Smith side. I'm positive. Because you don't meet someone that was a better, fresh, just a breath of fresh air every room she walked in. Now, she's not perfect. But her devotion and piousness drove her deeper into the person of Jesus, not into the religious practices. Those were just scaffolding meant to help her connect to God. They were not the point, and she knew it. So Paul warns people about this self-saving spirituality, and he cautions us even to this day because they will not provide help in conquering people's evil desires. Then he moves on. He talks about sensational spirituality. And so he, he doesn't just leave it at one end. He goes to the other extreme, sensational spirituality. Here's what he says. Chapter 2, he says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. What's Paul talking about? Apparently, there are people trying to control the believers that are gathered in the, the small church in Colossae with fringe theology about the mystical and the fantastical and with personal visions. So if somebody comes to you and says, I've heard from God, it's hard not to elevate them, right? Well, apparently everyone was doing, or a lot of people were doing it in the church in this time. And I, this is more like sensational spirituality. I like to call it dessert-style spirituality. It tastes so sweet, all of this type of stuff. You know, uh, I think I've shared with you my love for ice cream. In fact, uh, ice cream is unsafe in the freezer when Jonathan Smith is around. No, seriously, it's not even safe. Uh, how many, let's take a little poll. haagen or Ben & Jerry's? I'm hearing a lot of haagen It's hard to beat Cherry Garcia, though, and Ben & Jerry's. That's pretty good. But almost anything these guys make is so good. Now, I'm not about name brands, but I'm about good ice cream. You know, here's the thing with ice cream. I, I, when it's in the house, it disappears quickly. And it's because something happens. I, does ice cream do this to you? It whispers to me. <laughs> it does. After my conscience goes to bed, I, don't, I mean, Shelly goes to bed, I'm in the living room by myself, and it'll call to me, please. It's just, this is what it is. No, please. It's so cold in here, Jonathan. And your belly is so warm. And I don't want to eat the ice cream. I don't want it. But I am so kind and caring and compassionate. Like, I cannot turn a deaf ear, friends, on that. And so I succumb and I eat the ice cream. That's why I try not to buy much of it these days. Because I have no ability to not be compassionate and, and kind. Now, spiritually thinking, dessert-style spirituality or sensational spirituality is the ice cream of faith. It tastes so sweet. It always wins. It always prophesies victory. It always overcomes. It always moves mountains. It always appeals to your ego, and it always requires less of you. And friends, some of us have a real sweet tooth for this type of 
spirituality. In Paul's day, these people are having visions. They're elevating worship of angels. And the idea around that was just, these are fringe theologies that they're elevating and making. Why? Because it's new information. It's exciting. Tell us something new, preacher. Don't tell us the same old things. Let's find something that's unique and different and so fringe inside. And what about the Mnifilin? What about this? And we begin to go around the Bible all to avoid the central parts that really matter but are really hard. They're not hard to understand. They're just hard to live, Right? So let's grab onto something that is sweeter. Fringe elements. Now, not everybody is wired this way. Listen, there are a number of Smiths in our church family, or in my house, that if there was ice cream in the freezer, it's safe for months there. I'm the one with the sweet tooth for it. They are not nearly as compassionate and caring as I am. (laughs) Friends, there are some of you that that self-saving spirituality, that really is something that you fight. There are some of you, you, you love the sweet stuff. You do. You have a propensity to want it to be the flow of, of your spiritual life. Now, dessert is fun and good. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe in the miraculous. I've seen the miraculous. I've seen God do things that only God could do. I believe in the supernatural activity of God right now in this room. So don't take that sensationalization to mean that the sensational doesn't happen. It does. But remember this. It's just a signpost. It is a connecting point. Every miracle is to reveal the the power of God. It's not about the miracle. Don't, don't, make it about that. don't make it about that, make that a central part of your faith journey. And so he's challenging them and he challenges us. Here's the thing and the truth about both of those types of spirituality. Self, self-loving spirituality should be self-saving spirituality, sorry, demands more of you. Self-saving spirituality, it's always try harder. This is where a lot of condemnation comes on a lot of people's spiritual journey. Try harder, be more disciplined. Uh, church attendance, Keep it perfect. Listen, you're humans. That's never the anticipation. Perfection is not the goal. Relationship is the goal. Perfection is not the goal. Relationship is the goal. But sensational spirituality requires less of you. And that's why it sometimes appeals to us. So let me wrap it up this way. Self-saving spirituality appeals to those of us I like to think of it as more of firstborn mentalities. And I'm not per- picking on firstborn people because I think I admire my firstborn sister. There's not a more disciplined person I know. And it's incredible how she is so responsible. And there's so many times I want to say to her, and she might be listening right now, <laughs> that's a huge weight for any human being to carry. It's okay. It's okay. That... Sometimes it's very sincere. They're just, you're just really a responsible person, and you like a scorecard. You like something that will let you know whether you're winning. And you know you're like this because even at work, you love the scorecards that let you know you're winning there. You like to know the scorecards in your relationships. Is it winning right now? And, and we can translate that into our spiritual work, and we get a grid, and we work it to win it. And Paul's caution to you today is you can't save yourself. You just can't. All of that devotion, all that self-denial, all of that piousness, all that discipline. Hey, that's not evil, that's not wrong, but that bridge cannot ultimately bridge you to the lover of your soul. 
Don't mistake the scaffolding for the cathedral. You know, uh, this is Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. You remember it got burnt down a few years ago? And the scaffolding's been up around it for, for ever since. Listen, uh, you can climb the scaffolding to the top of the cathedral and never get to the heart of the cathedral. And a lot of religious people do that. They know how to scale the scaffolding and they get to the top of the cathedral and they miss the heart. It's about a relationship, friends. And then this sensational spirituality, I think it appeals to those of us who crave comfort. We crave comfort. We're stimulated by the fantastical and the mystical. I think in some ways, I think it can appeal to us because it requires a little less of us. It doesn't talk about obedience often. It doesn't talk about devotion often. And I think of it a lot like in this realm, it's like adding juice crystals to water. We add God to our lives to help life go down better. <laughs> we add God to our lives to help something get unstuck, and we think that God is just going to help us get over the next hurdle. And you're forgetting that God can help you get over the next hurdle. But that's not the point of connecting with God. It's knowing God. It's loving God. It's being with God. You know, I, I think this is why follow is so important in our church. I'm so thankful for Pastor Jessica and the team that have put that together because it's not just about the experiencing God moments and you need that. It's also about the disciplines that help you to keep a healthy relationship with God. So all of these things, none of these things are evil. They're just broken signposts. They're not the point. They're not the connection point. You can connect. There are connecting methods. They're not the connection. So what is, what is the thing? Well, verse 17, I left out a key phrase when I read it earlier. Paul says this, these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. So here's your homework. I would love you this week to read Colossians chapter 3 because it outlines what a life looks like that is hidden in Christ. I would really appreciate it if you would read that. I think it would nourish your souls. By the way, this word Christ is not Jesus' last name. We know that here, right? <laughs> so uh, it, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch because they always were talking about the anointed one, Christos. So Christ means the anointed one. Here, here's the point, friends. Jesus is the point. Christ himself is the reality. He's the point. At the end of all your striving, your achieving, your wanting, your lusting, is Jesus. This is what the emptiness you have in your life, what you're craving for, is the person of Jesus. Jesus is your North Star. He is the home run. He is the point. He's the soulmate that truly satisfies your soul. The one you're longing for. He's the sin eraser. He's the great healer. He is the one that sets captives free. He is our Savior. He dives deep into pain and death and sin and brokenness and the grave so he could bring freedom to you. He is the one who sets children free. He's the one who sets couples free. He's the one who sets captives free, addicts free. He is the one that sets apart and frees those who are competent or incompetent, rich or poor, healthy or sick. He is the one who sets free the privileged or the underprivileged, the educated or the uneducated. You see, friends, being spiritual isn't enough, but Jesus is 
is enough. He is enough. He's why we sing these songs. He's why we give. He's why we serve and roll up our sleeves. He is the why behind all of this. Jesus, he is the point. All of the things like follow and everything else we do, they're connecting points. Hoping that they will help you build a connection with your Savior, your Lord, and your Creator. So as it turns out, Paul sees the world a lot like the ancients did. That there are two spheres. There are humans and there are activities, the abode we live in right now, the room we occupy right now. And then there's the abode and activity of God. And they intersect. And now there isn't a temple. It's not a church building where you find God living. Instead, because of what Jesus has done, now the temple or the presence of the Holy Spirit is in us. Now we connect with God because God is in us. When we turn our face to Jesus and say, not my way, but your way. When we bow our knee to Jesus and say, you're my king, not the gods of this world. All of a sudden, we're filled with his spirit. And all of a sudden, his presence is in our lives. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is a collection of people that bear his image, that hold each other accountable, that edify each other, that serve each other. Why? So they, we in turn can serve a world that is deeply spiritual, that is longing for a deep connection with God, their creator. So I told you I'd share a secret with you. You ready for the secret? It's found in the previous chapter. Paul says this, and this is the secret. Shh. When people ask, how come you love your enemies? Share the secret. When people ask, how come you're so patient? How come you, you wait for people? You don't judge them because they're lagging behind. Share the secret. When people say, how come there's a joy about you even though I see what's going on in your life and I know what's going on in our culture and society? Why is there this resiliency and joy in you? Share the secret. When people see a peace, you ever notice around peaceful people, I, like, don't you love being around them? There's something amazing about the peace they have. They're not striving in those spaces. They're present. They're available. They're accessible. They're not busily looking for the next conversation. There's a peacefulness about them. When people notice that, share that secret. The secret is Christ lives in you. So friends, being spiritual is not enough but Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that every one of us in this room are guilty of elevating, really, God, uh, uh, either uh, scaffolding things, God, or sensational things above the real thing. And Lord, you knew this about us. You knew we'd have tendencies. And this is why you gave us the gift of scripture that speaks to moments like this. So God, we choose as a community not to feel condemned, whether we like the sweet stuff or whether we like, God, the achieved stuff. 
we choose not condemnation. We choose to allow your Holy Spirit just to probe our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to use those religious practices and even the discipline and habits that are so essential to following you. And help us to see those more sweet stuff, the miraculous and the supernatural things that you are always at work doing, God. Help us to remember those are connecting points. Those are not the connection. Help us to value, God, our relationship with you over the stuff you do in and through us. So God, I pray with my friends here that you would remove any barrier between us and you. Whatever we've constructed and built, God, that has created a barrier between us and others even, we ask for your grace. And if you're in this room or watching online and you'd like to follow Jesus today, I'd love an opportunity just to pray with you. I'll say some words. They're not magic. But if they kind of echo where you're at and maybe... They, they reflect some of the songs we've been singing. They reflect what happened in this bapto- baptismal moment. You can know what it means to be filled with Jesus' spirit today. To have Christ in you. So here's the simple prayer. Jesus, forgive me. I need to ask for forgiveness because I do acknowledge that all of my good works, not enough. That all of my bad deeds... They condemn me. But God, you promise grace and freedom to me. I need your grace in my life and I ask for your forgiveness. I pray, God, that you'd remove any barrier between you and me. And God, convict me of the barriers I've constructed between me and others. Help me to be a forgiving person as you forgive me. Forgive me for my impatience. Forgive me for assuming on the people that are closest to me. Fill my heart with love like you love me. Help me to be gentle like you've been gentle with me. Transform me from the inside out. Fill me with your spirit. Christ lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.